This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 257 tonight. Uh, Maurice is actually out of town and will be not back till probably the end of the month. So we're I think we have Rick Strassman on the show on the 30th. He'll be back for that, I believe. So, um, But yeah, shout out to Maurice. And uh, yeah, we have an excellent show tonight. We are joined by our Twitter Spaces buddy, Leah. And... Um, Leah runs Twitter spaces uh, called the Invisible Night School. She also has live streams, which are going to be starting this Saturday. So check that out. Um, and you're, if you're interested in supporting our show, click the link tree link down below. Um, we've got a Patreon, um, you know, merch, all that wonderful jazz. And uh, if you want, just leave us a nice five star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really appreciate that. So, um, but yeah. Without further ado, welcome on the show, Leah. How are you? Hey, I'm great. Um, I just had three blissful days at a holotropic breathwork retreat, and now I'm trapped back in UFO Twitter samsara. So uh, back to business as usual, I guess. How are you guys? Yeah, no, we're great. Um, And uh, shout out to my buddy, Shane. Uh, if If anybody doesn't know, Shane is now a producer on the show, so... He'll be on a lot of the episodes, uh, so if you haven't already, go down to the bottom and follow Shane on Twitter as well, and follow Leah. Follow all of us, Mike Escape, Leah Prime, and Old Vet Symposium. So, um, But yeah, uh, Leah, so so explain this retreat. Was it just breath work? Um, was it specifically for breath work, or what was going on there? Sure, so it was through the Graf Transpersonal Institute. Um, Stanislav Graf and Christina Graf were really the originators of holotropic breathwork. Um, and the idea was that they wanted to provide psychedelic experiences without the inclusion of LSD. So they were very early researchers into psychedelic therapy. Um, so they developed this breathing, uh, I almost want to say technology um, and setting 
and a, a pretty, in my opinion, a fairly rigorous training program for facilitators to incorporate things like Gestalt therapy, Jungian analysis, art therapy, integration. So the third, the retreat itself was pretty much like 12 to 14 hours a day. And it was um, two breathing sessions each three hours. Um, and then mandala and integration work. And then um, typically some ancillary sort of healing or a therapeutic ritual. Um, and it was over the course of three days, um, extremely intense. Like I would say truly a psychedelic experience, even mm. if, you know, there weren't conventional psychedelics involved um, and extremely profoundly healing uh, in many respects. Like I think so many people are processing grief from the past few years, uh, myself included. And I think there's really something valuable in being in like a communal environment to have those experiences and the transpersonal healing involved, um, you know, because modern society, particularly the last few years, has made healing a one on one job between you and a therapist. So to be in a communal environment for this was really cool. Very special. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I'm very fascinated with breath, breath work. Um, obviously, you have the Wim Hof stuff, uh, but <clears throat> we had this guy Ben Holt on the podcast a while ago. And I did one of these alkaline breathing exercises on the Patreon segment, and it got really psychedelic really quickly. So you can induce like psychedelic-like states uh, with just breathing uh, techniques. So, uh, did you have anything consciousness-altering happen at the retreat? Um. Yeah, so I had two sessions, um, and it's interesting because the I, I breathed in our first session, and everybody was very, like, buttoned up in the first session, I would say. Like, there wasn't a lot of emotional intensity. There weren't outbursts. Like, people just kind of breathed. And I had a what I would characterize as a visually intense experience. Like, I was there with a blanket and an eye mask, a like, very kind of standard circumstance. And they, they play very loud, like drumming tribal music, right? So your, your senses are really pretty saturated. Um, and I would say probably after about 20 minutes of this breathing style, I would characterize the experience as pretty psychedelic and consciousness altering. I experienced a lot of ego dissolution, like that sense of transcendence or communion. Um, and then my, my second session was different. It was much more intensely somatic. It's very much like a body load without associated visuals, but still sort of possessing that kind of transcendent or ego uh, dissolving the experience. Um, and I also, man, I got to tell you, like driving back to my house yesterday, I was like, you know, tooling along, like driving. And I was just thinking, like, I had to stop at a gas station and I was like, oh my God, these people didn't just spend three days doing crazy intense breath work. Like it felt like a completely like dissociative experience to pump gas and buy a Diet Coke. That's awesome. Um, yeah, no, I would, I would love to check one of those out sometime. Uh, and I, I do know, um, Stan, Stan Groff from, I mean, I don't know if you've seen, but he had that documentary and book or come out about, uh, it's called the way of the Psychonaut. I don't know if you've read that or seen that documentary. Um, but yeah, his work with, uh, even trauma in the womb and things like that are pretty interesting if people haven't checked out his work. Um, even stuff with like LSD and that kind of stuff. Um, why don't you give us a little bit of background into you though? So like we're going to be discussing some UAP stuff, some artificial intelligence. Uh, what's your background with uh, AI and technology and all that? 
Yeah, so um, I always say that I've lived a number of lifetimes. Uh, I uh, would characterize myself as being fairly well educated in a variety of subjects, uh, definitely a jack of all trades, but master of none. Um, it, my academic background is highly di- interdisciplinary. Uh, I did my undergraduate work in science and technology studies. So um, I have a pretty strong background in like everything from multivariable calculus and engineering and physics all the way through minds and machines and uh, cognitive science. Um, and I did my graduate work in informatics and computing. Um, I did part in uh, rare books and manuscripts as kind of traditional librarianship studying Central European uh, historical printing. And then also studying um, in how people used, actually how people use the deep web and dark web to engage in political organizing and trust building relationships. I was studying things like the Silk Road, uh, for instance, and trying to determine how people who were buying and selling illicit things online were building trust in these uh, bizarre style black market transactions. So like I've been all over the map. Um, I left academia and my work as a rare book librarian a few years ago and have since kind of slowly moseyed through um, the technology world. I've been at a number of startups, ranging from being employee number three uh, at a company that was acquired for about a half a billion dollars, all the way through jumping in at like fully established organizations. Um, And all through this, um, I've always professionally basically bridged the gap between coders and developers, like sort of the computer touchers, and then... um, I would say non-technical people. So a huge amount of my intellectual energy goes basically towards translating and code switching between different styles of thought and different uh, ways of seeing the world. And I think that that's lent itself just in general to things like, um, I mean, even just UFOs and UAPs and approaching it, you know, in an interdisciplinary way and being able to sort of take a, uh, I would say, multifaceted approach to the subject. Interesting. Yeah, uh, that's a bad kitty asked uh, about your manuscripts and um, your work with manuscripts. Can you go into that a little bit? Oh, yeah. So I I had the great privilege of studying at Indiana University. Um, And this is noteworthy because Indiana has one of the largest rare book libraries available at an institution in the U.S. Uh, My little brother just just graduated from there. Uh, Beautiful campus. I'm born Hoosier. Oh, my God. Bloomington? Oh, man. I, first of all, go Hoosiers. I'm not a big college person, but my years in Bloomington were magical, especially after spending like three and a half years in like the brutalist architecture of an engineering school. <laughs> like Bloomington was just a totally different experience. Um, but yeah, I I had the good fortune of, of pursuing studies in the Russian and Eastern European Institute there, which was a language school founded in collaboration and conjunction with the Foreign Service during the Cold War. So study like people study like Azerbaijan, Georgian, Uzbek, um, Tajik, etc. So I studied um, Hungarian, Czech, Polish, Yiddish, a lot of these Central European languages, um, and. Uh, also studied in the rare book curriculum through their school of library and information science. And the cool part is that you take the classes in the rare book library. So it was a normal day to handle a Shakespeare first folio or a Gutenberg Bible. Um, and, and there's something very numinous and uh, ext- like transcendent about handling some of these artifacts. I can very distinctly remember working with an illuminated copy of the Civitati Deus, uh, City of God um, by Augustine. And feeling just this immense sense uh, of um, 
Oh, it's almost like like the power of these works echo through time. Um, and so I always found it to be this like very noble and kind of incredible profession. Um, and, and after I finished, I, I sort of did the round with grants. I, I was at Keeneland, which is a thoroughbred racetrack in Lexington, Kentucky. I worked in their foreign language collections. They're home to the largest equine sports uh, library in the world. I am not a horse girl, but I spent a whole lot of time like researching bloodlines on like $40 million thoroughbreds that like random sheiks from Saudi Arabia would buy and they'd want to like know, you know, who the great, great granddad was of their new horse. Um, and I also spent time at the um, American Jewish Archives in Cincinnati, Ohio, the home to like the largest rabbinical school in the reformed Judaic tradition. And I, there I worked on special collections. I worked on everything from audio recordings to uh, artifacts and materials from um, different concentration camps. Um, it, it basically just cataloging and documenting and archiving uh, resources that they had in their backlog. Um, but I, I, I always joke that like I'm hoping to hit it big at a startup um, so that, that way I can just go back to being a librarian because that's really where my heart is. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Shout out to Nora for that. Um, so, you know, we, we met in Twitter spaces pretty much UFO Twitter spaces. Um, I think you might've jumped in a couple of mine early on and I'm like, uh, I really liked what you were doing. And then I saw you in Tupacabra spaces and, uh, we just really vibed on, you know, similar type, um, you know, the way we look at this subject, uh, from more of like a philosophical, uh, lens. So I, I really appreciate, you know, what you've been doing with the invisible night school. Um, and just, you know, I think we're both big on like epistemology and trying to get people to think about things from things that, you know, from places of where we can know things as opposed to just guessing if this, what this person's saying is correct or that person or whatever and playing that whole game. So, Mm -hmm. um, I really appreciate that about you. Um, one thing though, I I wanted to ask you is, um, how did you get into the UFO UAP topic? Like when was that, was that recent? Was that a long time ago or? Can you hear me? Did we lose you, Leah? You there, Leah? Um, yeah, I'm here. Sorry, the signal's oh. not awesome. Like, oh, okay. Can, am I am I super laggy for you guys? Uh, I mean, it takes like a, a little a, bit, like a millisecond, I would say, maybe for, you know. I mean, we're okay. I, I'm I'm hardwired right. in here. I don't know if if I think Shane might be too. Yeah, I'm on I'm on Wi-Fi, but um. No matter if it continues to be problematic, I can uh, yeah, try we'll rejoining. Um, so that's a great, yeah, that's, that's a great question. So um, I am an inveterate Art Bell fan. Um, grew up listening. I am a huge radio nerd, like been into amateur radio since I was like nine years old. I have a radio tattoo to my forearm, vanity call sign, the, the whole shoot and match. Um, and so that was always my introduction to like high strangeness and UFOs. Um, but I, I had honestly, I, I'd been going through some serious stuff. Went through like a, a, a pretty bad breakup with a, a really difficult partner. Um, left my job, decided to leave where I was living, and all of a sudden, I had this glut of of spare time. And I was like, I'd been thinking about doing this uh, research project on Art Bell because I felt like he wasn't really given the kind of consideration or analysis he deserved, especially with his legacy and how we see it kind of reverberating and. 2022. 
And I started joining these spaces, honestly, because I was lonely and sad and needed something to spill my, or excuse me, to fill my time uh, while I was packing up my apartment. And I finally, I can remember taking notes on my phone and thinking, I'm going to do it. I'm going to speak up in a space today. And I, uh, I did. And there was like quiet. And then Tupac spoke up and was like, holy shit, where have you been? <laughs> and, and that's when I thought, oh, man, maybe I have something interesting to say about this. Um, I, I think, too, uh, and not to give myself too much credit here, but I think there, especially in this community, which is very small and very intense, I think there's a lot of value in having kind of outsider perspective and people who aren't sort of born into this constructed theory and reality of the subject. Like, I, I mean, I, I will be the first to say, I, I don't know very much about UFOs. I don't know cases. Like, I don't know names. I'm constantly asking people, like, who's that? What should I know? What should I read next? But um, I remain kind of uh, fascinated by how people pursue truth and how they interpret reality and how kind of myths emerge. And it seemed like such a perfect community to think about those things because we kind of watch all these things unfold in real time. Absolutely. Um, you know, Twitter spaces, you know, I've hosted some. Shane's been hosting a lot lately. Tupacabra hosts some. Uh, it's a great medium to just chat with people and look. I mean, I, I work remotely, so I love to just sit there mm -hmm. and listen to people talk while I'm working and stuff like that. So, um yeah, that there's a whole element of that, but at the same time, it's constructive. You know, I, uh, for me, it's like I get to sharpen my not debating skills. I would call it more dialogue skills, which is just getting better at communicating mm -hmm. with people who have different ideas or different you know ways of, of um, conveying I, those ideas. So yeah, I really appreciate that medium for sure. Um, but yeah, I. I, I know, uh, I'm sorry about that. I know no, people you're good. are pretty appreciative as well. I got a DM today. Someone attended one of my spaces, and they were talking about uh, addiction and things like that, and they were thankful. So that's mm -hmm. what makes me do it, you know, speaking, talking about things, knowledge. Yeah, I think that there's... And I think, too... Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you're fine. Go ahead. Um, I, I was going to say, too, I think... Um... I mean, so much of our lives the past few years have been reduced to, like, the spectacle and to the screen. And... I think there's so much value in returning to spaces, literally spaces, Twitter spaces, but also just opportunities to connect with other people that are much more human um, instead of just text-based or on our own schedule. And I mean, I even think, I mean, I'm like a geriatric millennial and I think of even how much more I talk on the phone now with my friends than I have in the last 10 years. I think people are just starving for connection, especially now. And I honestly think there's just collective trauma that we can only process when we're together. And it happens whether you're talking about UFOs or sobriety uh, or anything else. But it certainly doesn't happen on Zoom calls for work, at least not in my experience. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff that people don't feel that free to divulge in those settings either. That's why, you know, you have a lot of experiencers come into those spaces and people that have, you know, mystical experiences, anomalous experiences, and they feel like they can share those um, freely and, and not be ridiculed or thought of as, you know, in a different light. So, um, yeah, uh, interesting. Um, I do want to get to 
AI though, because I really like your takes on AI sure. and um, there's an element of um, out there right now in the world where we're all scared, right? Like we don't know what's going to happen. There's an element of the unknown. Um, so I know that that one guy at Google thought that, that the, the chat bot or whatever that thing was, was becoming sentient and it was having, he was having a conversation with this um, AI. Um, I know you thought, differently and I, can you can you give us a little bit of a take on why you don't think that it's sentient and, and maybe even will never become sentient oh yeah absolutely um so just uh at a high level i think you can't really overstate how sophisticated language modeling has become um and i think the average person probably doesn't realize exactly how much algorithmically generated content they encounter on a day-to-day -day basis like huge amounts of the news that you read uh media that you consume is effectively programmatically generated by things like gpt3 um, a good example would be uh, sports journalism particularly tends to be programmatically generated um and i i mean the sign of very good ai in this space is that it's effectively indiscernible from you know organic human writing um I, what I think is interesting about everything with the Lambda model and this Google engineer is that this is probably the first time people encountered very sophisticated language modeling that was done in a way and presented in a way that argued for its sentience. Um, the reality is that uh, huge amounts of language, I mean, shit, human, huge amounts of human experience can be reduced to computation. Um, and, and whether that's a pleasant thing to consider or not, uh, the reality is that we can construct using language models and natural language processing very sophisticated and complex media. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that the model constructing this is sentient. It means that our language is mathematical or computational and it can be reduced to algorithms. Um, and there's all sorts of cool stuff that happens in this field. Like there's original authorship analysis, like the way, like a, a good example is like how people use punctuation and adverbs and conjunctions is highly unique person to person. So if you have a sufficient body or corpus of text, you can basically determine original authorship. You see this come up in stuff like um, determining if uh, Mary Shelley actually wrote Frankenstein, um, you know, and, and I, I bring this up just because the sophistication of these models, it's just the average person doesn't, you know, they don't encounter it, they don't work with it. So they probably just don't ever notice when they're actually engaging with programmatic content until it's presented to them as programmatic. If, um, uh, you do hear actually wrote Frankenstein. Sorry about Ooh, that. Get a little feedback you know? here. <laughs> um, and, 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 but, uh, <laughs> Shane's having some technical difficulties. On Where's that coming from? Was, Come on, Shane. It was, so it's three it's devices. the computer I'm tweeting. I'm doing all kinds of me. stuff with this thing. That's, <laughs> it's, 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 the, the computers don't want me talking shit about them. Um, yeah. It's already but, happening. You know, I think, yeah. I mean, so I think of, like, and this is stuff I've played in uh, a bit. I, I can remember working on GPT-3, which is like one of the more preeminent language models. And initially, it was a pretty substantial ask to even get access to it, because the concern was that people were going to use it to basically algorithmically generate enormous amounts of, like, mis- and disinformation for distribution. Um, and, and I think that that's something, um, I, I think about this a lot. It's called the, have you guys heard of the dead internet theory? This is, no. This is one of those things that like rattles around in my skull like a walnut in a wooden bowl. Like the, the dead internet theory is this idea that as more and more content is generated um, and more and more of like 
what we find on the internet is programmatic. So it's generated by a machine model. It's not written by humans. Um, the actual original human content just becomes so dilute that you effectively can't find it anymore. Um, and so you have the dead internet, like you have an internet that is just comprised of content that's programmatically generated rather than organically generated. And I think that sort of this regression back to internet 1.0 style communities or these dark forest communities is very much like a kind of self-organizing response to um, aversion to programmatic content. You know, we, we've all spent the last 10 or 15 years on the internet um, mainlining programmatic media and people are, I think, starting to feel extremely disenfranchised and alienated as a result. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of those things where I think we definitely are going through growing pains. Um, so, you know, technology has been around for a while. Obviously, computers have been around for a while. But the way we interface with them and interface with each other uh, on this kind of a level is, is still relatively new. And I think that it went from like being new, really new and like exciting and novel and like everybody had good vibes to now it's like it's been out there long enough where people are starting to find the other dark corners of it to do maybe not the best things and maybe show a little bit more of their dark side or like uh youngie and shadow and throw it out there for the rest of the world to kind of deal with. Um, <clears throat> it, but the, the weird thing is, um, you know, I don't see it getting any better. You would think that this would be some sort of like cyclical thing where maybe eventually it would start to turn around or there'd be these different cycles of it, but it just seems to keep going, you know, down and getting worse and worse and worse. So, um, I don't know. Do you have any opinions? Like, do you see this kind of resolving itself or do you think that we have to take some sort of action you or, know you know? So... Uh, one is, uh, I don't think there will ever be meaningful like regulatory action taken. And I say that because the tech ecosystem in general is virtually extrajudicial at this point in America. Um, but I, I think that there is a natural aversion increasingly uh, among people online uh, against these programmatic experiences. I notice it with my friends, people who are moving off off of centralized platforms, like maybe moving to Mastodon instead of using Twitter, taking their information off of Google, only using DuckDuckGo. Um, I think that it is uh, one, of the, one of the very small mercies of capitalism is that the surveillance systems that we all live with and breathe with and sleep with all the time is really just leverage to sell us things rather than to police our activities. Um, uh, although certainly that does happen as well. Um, I do think uh, the reemergence of, they're called dark forest communities. So they're basically small niche communities. I mean, you see it in UFO Twitter. Um, you find these spaces on Discord or Substack um, where people are organizing organically around subjects or materials that they care about. Um, and I find this very heartening because it's disintermediating these platforms like Meta, Facebook, Instagram, even Twitter, um, Google, etc. Um, and I find this very, very heartening. Um, but I, you know, I still think there's very serious concerns. I can remember when um, net neutrality was a major issue or a, a big subject at the forefront. Um, there was a, an increasing interest in ham radio because you can do packet radio, like basically transmit information, use your radio as a modem. And this would basically create the opportunity to establish effectively like alternate internets. 
so that you wouldn't be beholden to like Comcast or AT&T or whatever to change and exchange information. Um, and, and I think we're just watching, uh, I mean, we're sort of watching that cosmic dance, right? Things coming together and things falling apart. We're watching the dissolution of these uh, aggregator and centralized platforms. We're watching the rise of things like Web3, distributed autonomous organizations, deep web, or excuse me, dark web communities. Um, and I also think people are increasingly uh, aware of surveillance. Like when I think about even just using Signal, Signal is no longer a weird thing for people to use. Um, but two or three years ago, you know, you only met, you know, it was for drug deals and political organizing, but now it's for group chats. Yeah, I mean, the landscape's definitely changing out there, especially with all that and um, even like the legalization aspects of cannabis and people being freer to do the stuff uh, that they wanted to do the whole time freely. Um, so um, in terms of the AI, um, this this dichotomy, so like, you know, there is benefit to it, obviously, like it does help us in different ways. Um we can use it to our advantage. It's a great tool. Sure. Um, but do we at any point need to cut it off or, or like steer it in a certain direction? Or do you feel like we should just flow with it and see what like happens in like a, not like let's create these things and whatever happens happens, but just like keep going with where we're going and just assume that maybe we'll figure it out as we go. Or what do you think? It's a, it's a very good question. Um, I think my response is first that our technological growth, um, our, our reach exceeds our grasp ethically. I think we are developing technologically in a way that far outstrips and outpaces our moral and ethical frameworks for understanding the implications of these systems. Um, very candidly, one of my sort of disenfranchisements with working in technology is um, the frequent culture almost of denigration of the humanities and liberal arts, which um, to me is very concerning because the concern isn't artificial general intelligence or existential risk that it may confer. The concern is that the developers that are building these systems are without meaningful ethical frameworks or support to disengage from harmful systems. Um, and I think the other thing is when you have a team of, say, 50 developers and they're building, say, missiles or surveillance systems, it's very easy to abstract away one's personal culpability in creating and uh, enforcing these systems because you're just one tiny cog in a machine. Um, and I think this is something... Uh, these are issues that, in my opinion, weigh on the collective consciousness of the technology industry. And they've largely, unfortunately, been hand-waved away for the last 20 or 30 years because uh, the reality is that people want their Mercedes-Benz or they want their lake house more than they want to uh, seriously consider the ethical implications of their work. And it's deeply troubling. Um, I think uh, on the flip side, I will say that as uh, one of the cool things about technology is it very much can be a meritocracy where if you are skillful at being a dev, you don't need a degree, you don't need a graduate degree. Um, 
And I think we are well served by having an increasingly diverse workforce associated with technology work, because I think diversity of experience and backgrounds does help um, mitigate some of the harm. But um, I, I do think that there is uh, there are a few forces on Earth that can absolve the harm of some of these systems. And what concerns me is not the, like I said, existential risk or consciousness of these systems is almost immaterial to me. What concerns me are the prejudices and biases and lack of uh, concern by the individuals that are actually building these systems and implementing them. Yeah. <clears throat> and actually, that whenever I hear people talk about that or even elements of simulation theory, kind of reminds me of like Gnosticism and the idea of Gnosticism mm -hmm. that there is this one true creator God um, and then you have this like um, inferior, you know, demiurge or um, pseudo God right. or whatever that creates kind of like a, a crappier, um, shittier <laughs> you know, replica or whatever. Yes. <laughs> and it's, it, and it's, it's, it's basically like you think of like Plato's forms, or at least, you know, that's kind of where the idea um, comes from is there's this ultimate realm where all these ideas come from. So, you know, when we're talking about this and, and we're talking about making this thing, we are still um, using our own biases, even though we don't think we are, we still are like, is there, how, how do you get mm -hmm. out of that though? Like that? Cause I don't know. Like we're stuck in consciousness, so there's no way to really judge or observe ourselves from outside of consciousness because, you know, that that would be impossible. Right. We're trapped in technology. We are. Samsara. We are. I, yeah. Like, like it's the theme of the week, man. Uh, being caught in the demiurge, uh, separated from the godhead. Um, you know, it, it's 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 such a good question. Um, and I think, I mean... And I, I want to preface this by saying I'm not an accelerationist by any stretch, but I do think witnessing the rapid deglobalization of supply chains and of uh, world economies right now is also prompting, I think, a more – and also uh, the climate emergency, right? Um, like these things are prompting – more consideration by the average person about their role in the world. And I think that's also why you see like these reactionary traditional movements. Like I, I, I get it, man. Like, like my dream is to have a plot of land and a nice husband and some chickens and uh, no Alexa, no smart TV, no internet. Um, and, and, you know, a small community. I think that this speaks to people's souls. And I think, um, I, I don't want to say I think people are collectively waking up, but I think particularly people, you know, um, Gen Z, millennials, are realizing that we were sold, um, I don't want to say a lie, but we're the first generation whose lifestyles and quality of life are going to be worse than our parents. Um, and that's something all of us have to collectively contend with. And, and certainly we're not going to do it alone. The only way any of us survive is with mutual aid, with community support, by creating support networks. Because if anything, the last few years has shown that nobody's coming to rescue us. There's nobody's hands are on the wheel. Um, and it's as a result, it's up to us to help ourselves and to help each other. Yeah, the aliens for sure aren't saving us. Uh, so. Yeah. 
Don't hold your breath. It's like on that wishful one. thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah, like yeah. I I would love to live in a universe where like the UFOs would come in and like fix the climate. I don't think it's gonna happen. I think it's gonna be our problem. <laughs> Have faith in our lizard avatar overlords. They'll get us. Yes. Um so yeah, no, that's all interesting, and um, yeah, the, the world's just changing so quickly, along with our own consciousness. Um, it's really tough to to see a, a way out of this anytime soon, in my opinion. Um, I just feel like, and maybe that's how most people, like, I, I think about that too, like, maybe this is how all previous generations have felt. It's all relative, right, to time and your place mm-hmm. in the universe and whatever, so... Um, I, you know, I think we assign like, oh, we've got technology. We're on the precipice to this thing. And I think we are to some degree with certain things like exploring consciousness, exploring psychedelics in the mind, exploring UFOs. Like there are a lot of cool things coming out that were maybe, you know, poo-pooed or restricted from conversation before. Uh, so I think that that's cool. But in terms of like the relativity of issues and things like that. I think again, it's just this wheel just keeps turning. Um, and, uh, we've got to figure out a way to, to keep it going. Um, I don't know. Something I think about regularly is like how different is it now versus how it used to be? Um, I don't know. It's a tough question because we can't put ourselves in ancient people or old, you know, old times, uh, style consciousness. So, um, what do you think about what's going on with the UFO? Like we, obviously we're all on UFO Twitter. There is a lot of drama. We all three of us pretty much stay out of the drama. I know I hate it. You hate it. Shane's not a big fan of it. Um, <laughs> what do you, uh, what do you think aside from that though? Cause I know you and I discussed this again, this, this topic of people not really coming from an epistemological, um, lens they they kind of gravitate towards more of the drama or the hearsay so i mean like what do you see you see that you know kind of you know getting better i guess or yeah it's you know it's it's very interesting um i mean i would <laughs> candidly I, I i i tend to think of the community for myself as um how do I put this? My my thought approach is that this may be one of the most enormous and substantial questions humanity has ever asked itself um, about the the question of if we are alone, whether it's extraterrestrials, interterrestrials, God, the demiurge, whatever. Like basically the existence of non-human consciousness. Um, and I believe that the enormity of that question inherently confers a degree of respect and intellectual integrity in approaching and interrogating it. Um, And so I would say that I tend to find uh, very candidly some of the disingenuousness and intellectual laziness in the community, um, in some sense, almost disrespectful to, to the nature of the question. Um, I certainly understand, like, I've said, like, UFOs are my sports. Like, I don't do fantasy football. I pay attention to UFO stuff. And I also realize that UFOs are, like, a synecdoche for any kind of metaphysical question or consciousness or reality. Um, you know, it, I we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about flying saucers. We spend a whole lot of time talking about spiritual emergence, you know, and consciousness and consensus reality. Um, 
But I, I think that there is uh, a collective responsibility in this community to hold one another to standards of accountability and integrity, and also to exhibit commitments to the truth at the expense of our own egoic attachments to ideas that we may have. Um, and I, I certainly don't want to speak for you, but like I like um, in Yiddish folklore, there's the Dibbuk, which is this spirit that inhabits the kind of bardo between the living and the dead. And I frequently feel that way about UFO Twitter. Like, I am the first to say I am deep woo. Like, I'm at a breathing workshop. I'm at ecstatic chanting and kirtan retreats. Like, I do tons of meditation. Like, I am all about that stuff. I live and breathe it. Um, but I would also say that I am extremely committed to serious intellectual interrogation of the subject from an epistemological and ontological um, perspective, and also perspectives that are, um, I would say, very honest about how much uh, disingenuousness and deliberate mis and disinformation exist in the community. I mean, it, like, look, like the reality is there's a very long history of mis and disinformation existing to break up uh, subcultures that threaten uh, political hegemonic institutions like the Black Panthers and COINTELPRO and the CIA. And I think that there are certainly bad actors in the community and there are certainly people that are more interested in the drama. Um, but I try to take an approach that um, for me speaks more to um, the importance and the enormity of the subject. And, and mm. it's, it's kind of like... Uh, it's kind of like how I feel about experiencing spiritual emergence or altered consciousness during meditation. Um, if it's God, cool. If it's my brain just pumping out weird chemicals, also cool. Like I don't have a tele teleology here for a particular truth. I'm just kind of interested in the experience and kind of being in the thick of it and uh, seeing it as just a, another part of the, the human experience. Um, and I think that the the community, like I, I feel like I'm rambling on, but I think about this a lot, especially given the last couple of weeks. I, I just think that as a community, we need to do better in our integrity around this subject. And we also need to be, I would say, better stewards of holding people accountable, including ourselves and being willing to walk things back and, and say I was wrong or I'm sorry, or I'd like to revisit this subject. I think that that's you know, part of being a functioning person in the world. And it's also a collective responsibility we all share in, and none of us are free of that responsibility. No, how, would, very, uh, how would you answer that? <laughs> very well put. Um, and I agree with everything you said. I have realized this about myself, uh, and this isn't just within UFO Twitter. It's with all of this stuff. It's our podcast, other forums, whatever. I wonder if I'm a trickster in a way because, and let me let me tell you why. Um, I I'm not a contrarian by nature. Like I'm not gonna just take the opposite view. But if I know something and I feel like somebody's being disingenuous on one side, I will always steel man the other side. For I don't know what what that is about me, uh, but I feel like I have to protect the underdog maybe in some regards uh at the same time though and l let me just say this i also feel like you mentioned your woo and i would say you're very not woo compared to a lot of people i hear um in the spaces so i feel like my duty in a lot of these spaces is to be the opposite of woo and to add some sort of cohesion uh, um 
based on you know things that again like epistemology like things that we know things we can quantify um, and kind of bring it back down a little bit not because i'm trying to change people's views or anything but because i like i said i feel like you like you said we have a duty and if we're just gonna you know um speculate upon speculation upon speculation upon speculation we're going to get to a point where there's going to we're going to be so far in the clouds we're not even going to know where earth is anymore you know so i I feel like there is a duty um and and partly it's me maybe it's partly you maybe you know depending on the person and the day and whatever but i feel like again my duty is to be there to add facts um interesting things that correlate things together and just just kind of like I said like bringing people together um over stuff that we can all know as opposed to you know like experiencers and all that that's awesome that's fine I've had my own experiences it's anecdotal though so like when people are trying to speculate they usually do it from you know when we're not talking about experiences they usually do it from a place of like uh, they have an interesting theory or maybe they're basing it off of their own experience or, or something like that. But I just feel like, again, um, we do have a duty to kind of balance things out, I guess, is what it is. We need balance. Yeah. That's kind of what I add. One of the things I've so deeply appreciated about your contributions in this space and in our own conversation is that you recognize wholeheartedly that these conversations about UFOs do not exist in a vacuum. And you seem to have this extraordinary underpinning of philosophy and history and uh, religion. And I think that, um, like you said, it becomes very easy to treat this as a subject that exists on its own. But the reality is that it's informed by thousands of years and thousands of contributing thinkers. Um, And there's so many different frameworks and approaches and ideas through which the subjects can be approached and considered. And I think it's also like, let's be real, it's really important too to acknowledge that you can have a thought or an idea and not actually believe it, you know? Like, you know, or that some yes, of this is Aristotle. just thought exercises. Yeah. Aristotle, baby. It's just thinking. Being able to hold a thought without actually accepting it. Exactly. Isn't that what Socratic dialogue is? When you're just playing both sides with yourself so you can get to the answer. Yeah. Do you have any questions, uh, Shane? Actually, I did. Um, Leah, what ways do you think we could utilize AI to help us get at the phenomenon? Un- uncover what it is, possibly contact? Oh, it? dude. Yeah, I, I think about this all the time. And it's actually, I've been going back and forth with another researcher uh, in this like in this general field. So like one of the cool things about AI, obviously, that it does way better than humans is it can... Um, explore and analyze and skim through enormous amounts of data and information. And I think one of the big things with the phenomenon is that um, there are disparate sources of data and information scattered in private industry, scattered with the military, with the government, etc. And for us to make any meaningful progress, the first step will be aggregating it um, into a resource that can be accessed collectively. But then the next question is, you know, there simply aren't enough hours in the day to review 20 20 million experiencer reports or all of the MUFON archives or whatever. Um, And so instead, we have tools, we have natural language processing, we have clustering, we have propensity modeling um, that we can use and outsource that work for us. 
in order to surface uh, opportunities. Um, you know, and I mean, even like I think about like one of the greatest applications of AI is like uh, medical imagery. Um, like AI and computer vision is very good at recognizing things like enlarged hearts or uh, spots on lungs that maybe doctors don't see. And uh, similarly, I think with the phenomenon, like when you have these aggregated resources together, you'll be able to surface insights that our human minds just can't do and can't comprehend um, and can also identify emergent themes. Um, I mean, I, 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 I think there's a huge critical need to basically conduct an exhaustive ethnographic study of experiencers. Um, and by, you know, if you conducted, if you had a research team, if you basically did what Alfred Kinsey did for sex, only you did it for experiencers, and you aggregated this enormous corpus of qualitative interview and quantitative demographic data and psychographic data, I think you'd find some really spectacular insights and results and thoughts. Um, and the only people I've even seen come close to this is the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium headed by Daniel Ingram. You know, they're looking at psychedelics, spiritual emergence, awakenings, and also sort of like classical experiencer experiences. Um, but until there is that kind of initiative undertaken, like AI isn't going to be able to touch this because the first step uh, is any AI person will tell you the first step is getting the data cleaned and aggregated. Uh, and it usually takes about 75% of the time. Yeah, interesting. Question. Given the appropriate resource and time, could AI replicate the phenomenon sure. using machine learning, photos, videos, and get to a point that, let's say, enough time passed that it could just produce what it's doing, like it actually discovers it? Uh, that's So my first response was to say that AI, computer vision, et cetera, could replicate media that would be indistinguishable from real media in this space, like real pictures or real recordings or whatever. Um, I think we would have to know an, a lot more about what is actually going on in a meaningful sense before we could expect a technology to surface or duplicate um, experience or phenomena. Um, but I, I think your question touches on this really interesting um, phenomena uh, in this community, which is that um, there is always emergent mythology in ufology. So in a way, it almost doesn't matter if something is true or real, if you have sort of this critical mass of people who believe it's true and real. And, and I think that AI could absolutely render and create media that would be extremely compelling for people. And it could also, I mean, as a dis or misinformation um, technology could very much dilute legitimate information uh, to the point where, you know, it is it falls prey to the liar's dividend. It's totally delegitimized just by virtue of being in close proximity to illegitimate misinformation. Interesting. Um, so lately I've been throwing around this idea, um, <clears throat> and I don't know if anybody's talked about this. This is something that just came up to me one night when I was uh, on an edible. Um, but... Uh, so the idea that, um, so like, I feel like consciousness is evolving so much quicker than our biological bodies that maybe this is the urge that we have to create AI and, uh, machine learning and these things, because we know that to get, to get to the level and the pace that we want to get at, 
um, with our minds that this body is just not going to hold up for very much longer in terms of like supporting that. So um, do you think that that's why we have this urge to, to create AI, use AI, maybe create some sort of um, bio or um, mechanical, you know, sheath for our consciousness or something along those lines? Like, do you feel like that's the case maybe? Cause uh, I definitely think that that's a possibility. Oh, yeah. I mean, the human obsession with legacy and immortality has driven, uh, I would say, <laughs> if maybe not if every human achievement, enormous amounts of human achievement and initiatives. Um, I, I think that it, it's, I'm not certain we can, we are anywhere near mechanically reproducing consciousness in a, in a meaningful sense. But I do think that there is validity to the notion that we can informationally capture all parts of the human experience, like that all of human experience can be reduced to computation, which in turn can be saved and organized. Um, I don't think we're near doing that in any meaningful sense, but I think it's that to me feels like something within human grasp. Um, I... I do think it's funny. I think about this a lot because, you know, there was a period in human history, like when Erasmus was around, where it was conceivable that you could know pretty much everything humans could know. Like you could exhaust kind of the existing human knowledge. Obviously, we don't live in that time anymore. And at a certain point, um, not just cognitive decline that we experience, but just the shortness of our lifespan will prevent us from thoroughly interrogating complex subje subjects. You know, I mean, think of how many years it requires to become a surgeon or a doctor. Um, and I mean, what about curing cancer? Like, think of how much exhaustive knowledge, learning, resourcing, information the human mind has to acquire in order to even approach that subject. Um and I, I think that we may be reaching a point where simply our biological longevity cannot sustain and support the complexity and sophistication of some of the technologies we want to create. And I do think, like, look, I, I, um, I, I think that there's something truly numinous about consciousness and the human mind that um, lends itself to extraordinary sense making and problem solving and interpretation that we simply cannot and probably will not within our lifetimes be able to replicate uh mechanically um i, I think of there's this uh they, i'm thinking because uh, i know matt's in the chat right now but him and i have talked about this about how i think it was von braun argued for manned space flight because he thought that the human mind had to be in space to contend with like the enormity of the experience and also to provide problem solving like the human mind is a better problem solver than any computer. Like uh, the, the computer that beat Gary Kasparov at chess would lose to me in checkers. Right. Mm. So to suppose that there's like a breadth of intellectual powerhouse uh, in our technology at this point is just wrong. No, great points. Um, yeah. And I don't, I think we've talked about this. I don't believe we'll ever be able to create what's what you would call sentient, AI or AI that has consciousness. Because I, I just think that there's something to be said about billions of years of evolution that you just cannot right. recreate. Um, so, do you um? And this is one of these. This is one of these questions because I feel like it's 
not in vogue yet to admit to believing this, but I think it will be soon, which is, um, what are your thoughts on non-localized consciousness? Like, do you think all consciousness happens in our skulls or do you think consciousness exists like around us or outside of our minds? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I've mentioned it probably a hundred times on our podcast. Uh, I'm completely open to the possibility of, um, you know, our brains being somewhat of a receiver, you know, I've been trying to even look, at the brain and um you know how could that what what would the mechanism be or how would that work um and and, you know the other weird thing is this so like we've had a a quite a few near-death experience episodes with people that have had traditional Mm near-death experiences even this one guy had two traditional near-death experiences uh when he was waiting for his heart transplant and he finally got his heart transplant and it was a girl's heart she had um she had passed away she committed suicide um, and after the heart transplant, he had all these like weird cravings for like Skittles and different things he didn't even like, um, before. And, um, he found out later after he had met her family that those were a lot of the things that she really liked. So, um, mm-hmm. I'm under the impression that at least our organs carry some level of consciousness to them as well. So I don't know if it's like a complete system type thing that's happening within our bodies, not just our brain. Or if it has to do, you know, because like even our serotonin, like 80% of our serotonin is contained in our gut. And, right. Um, Bodily you know, intelligence is a real yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So to your point, though, uh, I could totally be convinced of uh, it being non-local. And there's one thing I brought up recently, which I think is very interesting. There is a PubMed um, paper i've posted it a few times on the the pineal gland how they have found these crystals um these you know similar to autoconia or the ability you know like those tiny bones in your ear that pick up vibrations they found these like little tiny crystals in the pineal gland who's not to say you know there's some sort of piezoelectric effect thing happening with that or there could be that happening throughout our whole body or who knows you know so like um Mm -hmm. i definitely think about all that stuff all the time uh you know, am I fully convinced of it? No, but I, you know, I'm not opposed to it either. I like talking about it. It's fun. Um, I've heard some weird takes on it too. Um, but yeah, the idea that your brain's kind of like a receiver. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but look, everything is frequency and, uh, vibration and, um, all that. So, and, you know, music alters your consciousness and, in you know, that's, that's flowing through the air. You're picking up those waves. I don't see why that, you know, couldn't be the case for all oh, consciousness. Yeah. M- music is m- music is pretty much how the average person experiences altered consciousness. Absolutely. Um, music and flow states, and I guess sex too. Like, yeah. Those are kind of the three things that the average person has experienced. Maybe not UFO Twitter. Maybe they haven't had too much sex. But besides <laughs> that, um, that's how Leah, most people encounter altered consciousness. Leah's calling yeah. them out tonight. All right. Funny. I was going to say, yeah. if you pull back far enough on the universe, the cosmic web kind of looks like a brain as well. Mm. Oh, yeah. 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 Like the, the, re- the re- repetition of like imagery and patterns is always super fascinating to me. Right. Um, it's, it's good stuff. Yeah. It also, man. I, so I just read this, uh, this article from Eric Hole. I think it's H-O-E-L. He won a book review contest, but he was talking about, uh, this theory that the reason humans existed for like hundreds of thousands of years, but only really developed civilization in the last 10,000 years was because we finally, it's only in the last 10,000 years that we existed in communities large enough to like keep, 
canceling and drama from like crushing any attempt at civilization and that it's only when our networks have grown larger that we've actually been able to build like sophisticated and complex systems and societies um i'm not sure if i it's i appreciate the aesthetics of that view i'm not sure if i agree with it but i've been thinking about it a lot lately um and i always think of it too just as the i mean human beings are so prone to self-organization and creating communities and in very predictable ways, like the way people create Facebook networks are very similar to how people create like in school social networks or in person social networks. Um, and I, I think maybe the sort of spirit of the community, you know, the religious traditions will say that God dwells in the community, that God dwells in the energy that exists between multiple people gathering at like a Sangha or in meditation or in prayer. And I think that, like that to me is almost indirect, indirectly speaking to the the notion of non-local consciousness. Um, Absolutely. Um, yeah, I just, uh, like I said, there's too many weird things that happen. And, you know, anybody that's ever had like an out-of-body experience or something like, there's something to be said about that. Um, I know that there's the way that they've been like trying to quantify near-death experiences. They'll set up targets in a room and when somebody leaves their body, in the operating room, they try and have them come back and report what that target was, and that would be verification that they actually left their body and were able to see something outside of their own consciousness, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy. That's that's a that's a great experiment if you think about it. So, it it is, but I think it's also so reliant on mater- the framing of reality as a materialist phenomenon. You know, like rather than like like I I do think it's it sort of reminds me of like reporting about DMT experiences, right? Mm-hmm. Like it is not physically there, but like, you know, people are very consistent that they will say it is more real than our inhabited reality, our material reality. And I sometimes like one of the things I struggle with, I mean, around ufology, around consciousness, around questions of metaphysics is just kind of how primitive or crude, frankly, I find the scientific method in approaching these ideas. Um, I, I think it's a deeply imperfect approach, but uh, unfortunately, you know, it's like democracy. It's the worst option except for all the others. Yeah. Um, but I think when you're digging into things like near-death experiences or ego transcendence or spiritual emergence, like you almost employ like a, a, they exist in a sort of numinous space outside of like material interpretations of reality and consensus reality, right? Because like I would say like my own experience with emergence um was undeniably real and physical and somatic and emotional and psychological for me, but it wasn't material in any sense, you know? Mm. And I, you know, it's, but um, yeah, near-death experiences are fascinating. Like I find like any, I I think near-death experiences, um, out-of-body experiences, I, I spent some time this summer doing the gateway tapes just for fun. Uh, it's been a weird summer, but, um, you know, between that and also just the transpersonal breath work, um, you know, I, I think that human brains uh, do really cool things, do very exotic things under different circumstances that may really be outside the grasp and measurement of our current methodologies. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, for I can speak to this personally. It's I do my best when um, there's some, like, uncomfortableness or some you know outside of your comfort zone um and not from like a from like a long um like a long period of time or anything like that but just having that 
that to kind of like fall back on as inspiration for um, thought experiments and ideas and things like that. And just just that little shake up, I think sometimes gets my attention. At least I I, I can't speak to anybody else, but I know some of the more um, I don't even want to say like bad experiences, but just experiences again that that challenge um, you in different ways. I feel like have been beneficial. Uh, to me in different ways um, and it, oh, especially yeah, you mean, know yeah yeah so I mean do you feel that way or do you have a kind of a different take on that oh I completely feel this way um, I, I would say that my suffering has brought me closer to God right and, and I say that as someone who is not in any sense conventionally religious um, I, but I think that there is something deeply sacred about grief and about suffering and about the experiences of painful human life um, that said, I can believe that um, I have uh, benefited enormously in terms of developing a more compassionate and open heart from pain and suffering, and also say that I would never wish this on anybody. You know, like I would mm. never, I would never want someone to suffer as I have suffered, or I have never want someone to suffer in ways that are unfortunately so common for human experience. Um, and I think that. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think a meaningful life is found in wanting other people to suffer the way we have suffered. Um, you know, I, I feel like no one is free from this obligation to act compassionately towards fellow man. Um, even if that means sometimes doing very difficult, painful things, right? Mm. Um, but yeah, I, um, I'm, a, I'm a, like, look, in my, in my non-UFO life, like, I'm big into type two fun. Like... I'm the person on the stair mill at five in the morning with a weighted backpack because I want to go hiking, you know, or I'm, I'm, you know, camping in the woods when it's minus five degrees. Like, I, I think uh, for me, where true life is found is in intense experiences. It's not found in safety or in predictability. It's found in the full vicissitudes of human experience. And I, I think that, like, when I think about, um, you know, I, I've spoken somewhat about this uh, kind of progressive spiritual emergence I had last year and the subsequent, like the dark night of the soul, like this script, totally on point, dark night of the soul, definitely a thing. Um, but I think about even just as I feel like I increasingly approach equanimity, you know, like there's popular conceptions of detachment in like Buddhism or sort of like Western mindfulness. And I think that that confers a sense that you should be numbed or uninvolved in your life. Like you should just always have this like stopgap between you and suffering or pain. But I think the I think well, the right, real like attachment is, is found... the root of all suffering, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think I think the real depth of human experience is found in equanimity and non-attachment, which means that you embrace the full uh, intensity of the vicissitudes of human experience. You let everything happen and you feel it fully. You don't detach from it. Um, and I think that that's really where life is found. And I think that that's really where like true spiritual growth is found in this non-attachment, this willingness to face everything rather than trying to numb yourself away from it or dissociate from it or distract from it. Mm. No, I, I completely agree. And I mean, that for me, you know, because of my OCD um, kind of coming along in my early to mid 20s, uh, it was debilitating. Like, I, I mean, I, you know, people joke around like about being organized or clean or whatever like that. But I mean, in reality, like I, <laughs> I don't know um, many people that that have that are pretty hopeful that have like real OCD. Um, so 
that for me was a challenge. Um, and you know, it took a long time, but you know, I've kind of twisted it now to like, how can I use this towards my, to my advantage? And, and that's through my music. It's through my work, through, um, doing this podcast, doing research, cross-referencing things, having that like, um, discerning eye, uh, and being able to quantify things, um, and, and, you know, using that repetition, you know, for a positive. Uh, so I think mm-hmm. that, um, that's a huge thing, but to what we're talking about too, like, like I said, I always like, you know, having one of these experiences where, you know, you're going camping and you have a challenging experience or you go, um, hiking or just even day to day, something comes up and just really challenges you, um, puts you outside of yourself. You know, that's, I try and embrace that, but then, you know, I yes. really, I really hone it in though. Like when you do have that stillness or quiet, you know, and you are comfortable at home is when you can really like analyze it. Right. Like it's, it's a kind of a yeah, twofold thing. It. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like you go through the process, you experience the thing and then you, when everything's calm or still, you have the ability to integrate it or analyze it in a different way. So, yes. um, have you ever had any experiences um, with like UFOs or UAP or anything like that? Have you ever seen anything weird like that in the sky that you can't explain or? Man, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> like, Do you want to? Um, get this lady a UFO. Oh, Come yeah. on. We, we need get to get. Yeah, I know. Come on. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so no, I haven't. I, I, I have had an experience with spiritual emergence um, and I, I think my approach to uh, ufology is very much framed by that, right? Because I would say that spiritual emergence, like, had I not had this, I would say, fairly comprehensive background in, like, Eastern and Western interpretations of reality and mysticism and ecstasy, um, I would have found, like, I would have been checking myself in to get stabilized, right? But, you know, th- these are very well-established scripts through all of human history, across all cultures, all religions, all philosophies, that humans have mystical experiences. They have transcendent experiences. Um, and I bring this up because it is, uh, and this may be a shortcoming for me, but, like, I see so much of UFO experience as being on that continuum of spiritual emergence, um, it just happens to be that the average person, and this is certainly not a slight, but like, look, the, we are all informed by our cultural landscapes. I grew up in a nearly Orthodox Jewish household. I didn't watch TV growing up. I didn't watch movies. I read books and that's still my life. So as a result, I see this stuff through the framework of like Philip K. Dick, Julian of Norwich, Meister Eckert. Um, but I think, you know, the average person sees this through the land, like through the lens of um, the X-Files or of the prevailing dominant kind of cultural prism um but i think we're all effectively talking about the same thing Mm. yeah no they are actually presented that presenting things that we know that are familiar to us that wouldn't scare us Mm -hmm. exactly yeah and i mean like we all have these cultural touchstones through which we interpret our reality and through our experiences yeah i um i just recently had my first day-to-day consciousness experience with my dad in his backyard on his birthday a couple years ago Uh, it was an orange orb and it was just anomalous and we both kept saying like how weird it was and um yeah i don't know i i didn't i didn't mythologize it we didn't keep saying oh this is aliens or we just saw ufo you know like it wasn't anything like that it was just i don't know it's very hard to explain but like in deep down i had that feeling 
and I was trying to, to convey this to somebody else the other day. You know, like if you're like in a car and you have like a close call and you get that like your you know your stomach jumps up in your throat and you have like the adrenaline pumping and you have that like just that like flash of like oh my gosh you know like it's kind of like that on a, like a lower level like you just feel like something isn't normal or right um so it's like i don't know how to explain it other than that actually to be honest with you um i mean so much of modern life is totally it's i mean it's algorithmically controlled yeah like predictable right lives yeah yeah we live extremely predictable lives and i mean that's a recent thing like it's only in the last couple hundred years um you know and i mean it i think as a result we're so unequipped and we also don't have any cultural narratives or frameworks for interpreting these experiences besides what we see through pop culture and through media um you know and it's i'm just I, I think that we are so dissociated and alienated from the natural world and we're so we have so much hubris about what we actually think we understand. The reality is we dude, we are barely out of the jungle and like we know the smallest fraction of smallest fractions. And the reality is the, the universe and our planet is teeming with numinous experiences. We just don't see them because we're staring at screens. We're sitting in cars. We're living in air conditioning. Um, anyway, Shane, please. I, I'm so sorry. No, actually, let me just pick up, piggyback off that. So you were just saying we lost all these different things. Do you think society, technology, perhaps AI doing more for us is dulling instinct, the ability to connect with this consciousness? Consciousness. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, we we live in a culture and within a system that is predicated on saturating our senses with media, with hyper tasty, fatty processed foods, with uh, dopamine through screens. Well, they're terrible, Um, but they're good, aren't they? Dude, they are so good. (laughs) Like, are you kidding me? Like, they're the the best, in fact. They're addictive. Um, You know, and I I think that, uh, look, this is by design, like, like, not to get political, but I mean, capitalism is predicated on keeping us isolated and alienated and precarious and um, coerced. And because it makes us good consumers, it keeps you from having or being able to advocate uh, effectively for yourself or form meaningful communities. Um, And uh, I think one of the truly unfortunate knock-on effects of this is a complete dissociation from the subtle somatic and intuitive experiences of being human like i always see that intuition is the somatic output of a complex biological system like intuition is real um gut feelings are real um they they are true senses that people can use as almost like a almost the way a dowser looks and feels for water like these are these are things that we experience but our environments and our culture and our society is um keeps us so awash and hyper stimulated that we don't know how to even listen for these responses anymore. And I think that's why, you know, association and alienation, people, the the sort of meaning crisis and the spiritual crisis we're all living through, like this is, I think, why there's a psychedelic renaissance, why there's a spiritual renaissance, um, why we see people moving towards these more kind of traditional existences with homesteading, um, and small community development. You know, I, I think yeah. we're, um, 
deeply, deeply alienated and dissociated from ourselves. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I to, to that point, though, and, you know, this is something I've been harping on, too. I do feel like we are in some sort of transitional stage, you know, like some sort of Thomas Kuhn bottleneck um, where we're, we're due for some sort of paradigm shift. Like because of the, mm-hmm. the research into consciousness, because of the research into psychedelics, because of the research into UFOs and UAP, because of all these weird fringe things that weren't taken seriously before, but now we know that there's obviously a lot to them. Uh, we are on the precipice of some sort of breakthrough through science and technology. And it's just fascinating to me, the amount of scientists that are against some of these, um, these, you know, topics or, you know, paths of study or whatever, they just, they mock it. Or, you know, I see people that are very anti psychedelic. I see people that are very anti woo or UFO, you know, look at all the people that attack like Avi Loeb, you know, like this dude's Mm -hmm. like one of the only guys checking this stuff out from like a a real, um, you know, not. I know there's a lot of scientists looking into this, but he's like one of the main faces, right? Like one of the most credible people that's taking this legitimately. So um, it's just weird to see the pushback. I even saw some lady who runs, you know, she runs like an article or something in one of these top newspapers. Like um, people were trying to like call for his job, like because he was interested in this topic. Like, is this where we're at for real? Like that people are really going to that level to, you know, somebody's, putting themselves out there. And one thing I'll say this before we move on, you know, we have, uh, we've had Avi Lova on twice and he's a man of his word. The first time he said he was going to do basically kind of what the Galileo project does and what he did. And when he came back, he had set this thing up and uh, here we have the Galileo project. Um, but I will say this, like he said something that I really agree with is, which is science. Um, you know, it shouldn't be people, scientists shouldn't be serving their own, interest it should be serving the public interest if you're getting all sorts of funding and i know there is private funding and things Mm -hmm. like that but if you're getting funding and you're you're trying to help humanity why not look at the things that humanity's pointing out saying like hey look at this there's something here and if you're an inquisitive person because there's not money in it yeah but but if you're an inquisitive person (laughs) you think somebody would step out and just you know put themselves out there i don't know that's just my point of view on it but it's it's kind of crazy to me that the the landscape yeah i mean one of the most violent elements of the capitalist system is that it prevents us from imagining and acting uh, in a way that cultivates different or better realities, right? Like it eclipses any alternative. Um, and uh, I mean, I'm with you, right? Like this is one of the most enormous questions to be asked. It seems like it should really be front and center in receiving endless funding. Um, but it is uh, in an oblique fashion directly challenging to the uh, systems that dominate uh, our culture and our reality. Yeah, it's just it's a, it just really doesn't make sense, the pushback. It's like if you don't want to look at it or take the time to look at it or you think it's nonsense, then think it's nonsense. But like the people like actively coming out to attack about it or like, try and point out like oh this guy's too woo for harvard or whatever like they did that with like john mack too people are still talking about john mack i couldn't tell you who the three following heads of psychiatry were there but i could tell you who john mack was you know so 
Yeah, I mean, people, I mean, look, in general, too, like, going back to what I said about how we live these, like, super predictable, comfortable lives, a lot of people possess basically pathological aversions to discomfort. And there's almost this conferred ontological shock when you consider that something that they consider so outside the reality or experience is being dealt with in a intellectually rigorous and transparent fashion. It's directly challenges and undermines their worldview. And, and I think that's difficult. Um, and, and I mean, that's even just besides the triple helix that effectively occupies the American academic system of military, private industry, and uh, pharmaceutical research. You know, I, I mean, I think I think Avi Loeb is a very important person. And I was um, one of my favorite things he wrote recently was talking about Martin Buber's I and Thou. Um, and I deeply appreciated, uh, I would say, the um, acknowledgement the, of the mystery kind of at the heart of this. And I think the other thing, too, is like we have had magnificent and extraordinary intellectual figures throughout human history that have also been able to thoughtfully engage with their subject while also engaging with the mysterious elements of human experience. Uh, these are not contradictory things, hmm. to be clear. Absolutely. I told him he should write a... Um, I told him he should write basically a critique on science. You know, like I'm, you know, you used to have it in the mm -hmm. ancient world a lot, but I told him he should write a modern critique on science. Um, Shane, you got a question? No, I was just going to point out you got to think about where some of that funding comes from too. Some of that's our taxes and where it's oh, yeah. hidden from us. That's that's bad. Yeah. And I was going to actually ask you, Leah, have you read uh, Operation Trojan Horse, Keel? No, so I know it's by John Keel. It's sitting on my nightstand right now. Um, I haven't, but I am uh, deeply, deeply, uh, I would say, aesthetically ens enthralled with both Keel and Valet. Yeah. Like, I was getting ready to ask I, what like, when I, when I think about it. Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> So I, I will I will say that I feel very much a, almost a spiritual kinship with uh, the good Dr. Valet. And I say that as an information scientist and also someone uh, as, a, as a Rosicrucian and someone who's, I would say, fairly woo. Um, I've read his uh, Forbidden Science, his diaries, um, which I liked very much. Uh, very interesting. Um, but I, I think, you know, I, I would say just Passport to Magonia, right? Like this to me speaks... Uh, in the most sophisticated and nuanced way um, it, and presents some very compelling and interesting ideas about interpreting the phenomena it, and in ways that I, I, it is difficult for me to not see the phenomena through this like Jungian mythology and transcendent truth and like no time, no place, Campbellian kind of lens. And so as a result, like maybe I'm self-selecting for Magonia, but I think that's probably my favorite one by him. Hmm. Yeah, no, interesting. I think, what's the last one I, let me see here. I got it on my Kindle. The Eighth Tower, is that the one? Oh, yeah, that's Keel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've read a few Jacques Vallée books, too. Passport to Magonia, uh, I think Forbidden Science, and Mentions. I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's one. I forget. I got to go that's back. That's most but, recent, I think. Uh, to, to the point, though, Leah brought up earlier, I actually don't really read that many UFO books unless I find it, unless I find there's more to it, almost like a, you know, American uh, Cosmic or something that has other um, disciplines yeah, involved in it. I, like, I need I, like I, a, a, a yeah. lens. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah and he, like, I don't read just like books about UFOs. I read books that have some lens through which they are looking at UFOs, American Cosmic, Passport right. to Magonia. Um, I'm reading a book on Roswell and the creation of myth. Um, mm. I'm a big fan of David Halpern's work, Intimate Alien. Um, where he looks at uh, aliens and UFOs basically through the lens of a Jungian analysis. Uh, mm. I think some of his conclusions are a bit far-reaching, but I, I like the thoughts that he has in that book. Yeah, and Jung's last book on UFOs. Now that's a that's a mind bender because he doesn't even come to a conclusion. He kind of leaves it up to you um, in a way. He, you know, is this a real phenomena or is it just a symbol? Um, and <laughs> You know, for me, it's like I try and I try and I, I got to go back and I've already read it a few times, but I got to go back and, and reanalyze it again because I just keep coming to different conclusions after I um, read it on what I think about it. Um, and I think before that, I read A Modern Man's Search for a Soul, uh, which had to do a lot with like dream analysis mm-hmm. and stuff like that, which I really like. Um, basically, Have- you know, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask if you've read anything by Bernardo Kostrup, because I just finished his book on anomalous phenomenon. And I I've think heard, is he, I would say he's that's, a philosopher, right? Yeah, he does a lot of like theory of mind and consciousness and reality. He's at like a lot of the science and non-duality events. Um, but he wrote this book on anomalous phenomena. And of course, I can't remember the title of it right now. But um, I would say his analysis of it um, was the most compelling and sophisticated that i've read so far Hmm. um totally worth reading it's like 100 pages it's it's quite short it's very dense um but he basically proposes that um he starts with basically the premise that there is no hard realism like that quantum entanglement and behavior basically undermines like a hard realist interpretation of reality and as a result this infers that there is a necessity of establishing a different kind of logical structure for analyzing truth and reality than the one that we have right now. Mm. Um, it's, it's very good. You would actually, you would probably really like it um, because it seems pretty like uh, rigorous yeah. in right, its thought right um, and also highly interdisciplinary. Yeah. It's, um, it's driving me nuts that I can't remember, but yeah, it's Bernardo. I'll, find, I'll and, find it. Yeah, you could read it in probably like a day or two. Like it's, I do, like I said, uh, it's not very long. But it's I very do good. Kindle, and I do have like a library next to me right here with like a ton of books. But um, awesome, I do actually mainly do Kindle, or actually I love Audible because I can do multiple things at once with Audible, and I feel like I mm-hmm. I'm very good at listening. Like I'm very, a very good visual and audio, you know, audio style learner. So if I have, um, you know, that at my access while I'm like working or doing something I actually feel like I retain a lot more than having to like reread pages that I find interesting and Mm -hmm. things like that so um yeah I'll check that out um but yeah so so but my my audible and kindle are very you know it's like and I don't know if anybody gets into these but I love these audible great courses you know if you're talking about like oh they're the best the ancient that's stuff. what I blow my yeah, credits yeah. on like all the time the yeah. Gnosticism audible stuff uh, the, the Gnosticism great course is, is awesome uh Plato Socrates and the dialogues by uh this guy Michael mm-hmm. uh Sagru. I don't know I gotta find this guy I want to have him on the podcast because the way he breaks down Plato's dialogues is unbelievable um you know, there's a lot of them on there, but yeah, I do, I do a ton of those. I love those. Um, but that's just like the old history nerd 
uh, in me with all that stuff. Um, so we were talking about AI. I think Shane kind of mentioned something like this, but do you think like, so I brought this up to Mick West when we had him on last episode, this idea, you know, you were talking about intuition and I was talking about like serotonin in the gut and everything. This idea that maybe AI, um, you know, I brought it, I, I, I'm trying to think how I laid this out to him. I laid it out to him as like, if you're using a camera and you try and take a picture of a UFO, you know, maybe you don't get it because you need the consciousness of a human being, some sort of conscious awareness or some other, whether it be some unknown um, sense or, again, intuition or something along those lines to actually have that experience as opposed to catching it on a camera, which is just a mechanical thing that we've designed to capture light. So I don't know what if you have any thoughts on that, but I feel like the observer is I massively mean, important in that experience. Yeah, I was going to say it's it's established in quantum physics that observing uh, an event or a process influences it. Right. So, so yeah. to me, it certainly does not feel like a long bow to draw to assume that the reason we can't capture some of this is simply that the mechanical instrument used in the attempt to capture uh, fails to confer the conscious observer as well onto the event. Do you think that we could use AI to maybe bridge that gap too? Because like, I think about like, you've seen those videos of, I don't know if people can go online, but there's this like video of this machine learning uh, machine. That's it's, it can like, like knock away the non red apples. I don't know if you've seen that video where it's crazy. The amount of apples that are being thrown down this thing, but somehow these little arms can like bounce out the non <laughs> It's like it's insane yeah. that this machine. Yeah, computer vision how... does this. Yeah, there's there's really cool demonstrations of it finding Waldo and where's Waldo books huh. in like under a second. So, do you think we um, could utilize something like that, or do you think that it truly is based on our supercomputer brains that are obviously flawed? But we do, like you mentioned before, you you want us on the moon because we're the problem solvers. We're the ones that can kind of um, take in the data and then we. Yeah, feed, and- you know, I mean, we're not programmed, some, so there's more options. Maybe at some point. It... Sorry, I don't, I don't know what happened there. You there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe at some point AI will be sufficiently sophisticated to act as a stand-in for a human observer. Um, but I, uh, in response to what you said about sort of this numinous quality to human consciousness that we don't think can truly be replicated by AI, it may be that that numinous quality is exactly what needs to be present in order to truly capture and acknowledge this event. Um, so it may be that only until artificial intelligence or AG, like general intelligence, really, um, I, like this is just a thought experiment. I'm not saying I exactly agree with this, but it may be that it is only until AGI can truly replicate human consciousness that until then it can't it can't uh function as an observer or as a stand-in yeah i like that um the thing that i find most interesting is this idea too that some from like a technological slash ufo uap standpoint um i've always liked the von neumann probe uh idea and if anybody doesn't know 
um, who John von Neumann is, please go start reading up on him because he's probably one of our most underrated, well-known, amazing thinkers that we've ever had in the history uh, of mankind. Um, you know, and actually, I found out I, I knew about him, but I found out a lot more about him from reading this uh, Oppenheimer. Um, biography called American Prometheus where they were going through the Manhattan Project uh, and I didn't know he was building like some of the earliest computers at the bottom of the um, uh, the Princeton what's that called the uh, Center for Advanced Study I believe or something along the Institute for of Advanced Study oh yeah pair yeah and he was at yeah. in, you know creating this thing in the basement and it just I guess it was eating up money and, and, and everything but he was creating some of the earliest versions of the computer and um also, just like his, he just, he was such a, an intelligent person. So please go check uh, John von Neumann out. And actually, I want to do an episode on him. So maybe he'll be part of our Paradigm Shifters series. Um, but yeah, so like, what do you think about the idea of von Neumann probes? Like in, in the sense that we send probes out there, we send satellites out there to check out other places. Could these, you know, UFOs or whatever we're seeing in the sky, maybe be technology from, you know, remnants from um, some other advanced, you know, society that got wiped out or uh, maybe had been here before. I mean, who knows? Like, what do you think about that? Um, so I, I love the idea of von Neumann probes. There is something deeply appealing to me uh, about their efficiency and ingenuity. And I also, I think the other reason I find them so compelling is because to me, they are within, it's sort of, it's like what I said about capturing all of the information associated with human experience. Like I can wrap my head around the actual mechanics and computation and resourcing required to do something like von Neumann probes. It doesn't feel outside of the grasp of humanity. Um, that said, I generally tend to stray from nuts and bolts interpretations of the phenomena. And as a result, while I find it an interesting prospect, um, and I, to be clear, I would love compelling information to more thoroughly interrogate this, but... I don't think that what people see are von Neumann probes or what they experience. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, like I said, I love that idea and I'm not convinced of that either as much as I want that also to be the case. I mean, I've read, I'm trying to think I wrote a blog after I saw that orb, um, how I think, um, and this came from a psilocybin experience. I felt compelled to write on this topic that this whole like because we mythologize everything this whole thing reeks of a modern day like greek pantheon of gods in which there's some there is something there um whether we're seeing a slice mm -hmm. of something interdimensional or um it's some sort of atmospheric phenomena we can't quantify yet or some sort of um magnetic anomaly with the earth or whatever it is i don't know um that maybe we're assigning this symbolism almost like bringing young into it um we're assigning the symbolism to something that we don't understand uh that could be explained away in the future given scientific observation um so i came to the conclusion that i do i think one of two things are possible 
that there is this external thing, as I just mentioned, and we just can't quantify it yet. Or could we be dangling this carrot in front of ourselves? Meaning that like, could we, we do this throughout history. We did it with superstition before religion. And then we did it with religion. We've done it with, you know, lots of things throughout history where we dangle this carrot of mystery in front of ourselves. And it's like, um, here, come figure me out, except we're doing it to ourselves, maybe subconsciously. Like we're saying, this is the next mystery. Let's figure this out. And then through figuring it out, we propel ourselves, um, evolutionarily, like through consciousness, through technology, that kind of a thing. So it's almost like some sort of a catapult of evolution. Um, so I don't know, but at very least, I think that, you know, this could be some sort of evolutionary mechanism that we do to ourselves subconsciously. And at most, I think it could be definitely something external. I don't know what you think about those, that dichotomy or those two things. I am, um, and I apologize if I'm, inter I'm interrupting. The uh, the signal's been breaking up a bit. Yeah, but, no, you're you're um, delayed a little bit. Did you hear what, what I, I said? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I heard what you said. Um, it, one of the ideas I come back to, and again, this is one of those. It is appealing, but I don't know if I agree with it exactly. Is that UFOs effectively serve as attractors in a complex system? So they basically serve as these, this additional ineffable force to drive or attract particular outcomes uh, through the course of, of human history. Um, and I, uh, I, I do certainly trend towards uh, using complex systems and models of complex systems for um, frameworks to interpret different things. Um, but I think of UFOs as often a, as attractors that are pulling us towards a particular teleological outcome, whether it's like the omega point or singularity or whatever. But the point is that um, it's almost like a, a bit of a step past what Valet says. But like, I think Valet is very much, you know, on the right track when he talks about these as control systems. Um, sort yeah. of incentivizing particular outcomes or events or uh progressions in history yeah i mean i i like that idea obviously the whole passport to magonia um you know us being able to see um you know something sorry you were kind of breaking up there um but uh yeah so uh, I think that where where I was coming from was a little bit different than Valet in the sense that um, I think his, at my very least, is a complete uh, mythology, and it's just us, or we're, it's us mythologizing, and and this kind of like our subconscious again dangling this carrot um, for reasons oh, that see. are beyond us. His is that there's an actual thing dangling the carrot in front of us or inter interfacing with us that we're just not aware of. So right. and I'm open, I'm open to that too, but I just, right. I had, but it's like a non-human force. Yeah. I just had this dichotomy though, where it was like, at very least it's this. And at very most, I fit, I think it's this kind of a thing. If that makes sense. It's like a range. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I try, I yeah, try and I mean, it's, it's a spectrum I stick of with possibilities. It, yeah. I stay within that spectrum for myself that so far I'm open to, you know, expanding it or contracting it, but. 
that's where I'm at. Um, let's see here. Shane, do you have any questions? No, not, not really. I was just going to say that I'm, I'm probably the engineer or conductor of the Woo train, so I'm all <laughs> in on the Woo. We need to get you like one of those like uh, wooden train whistles. Yeah. Um, and a striped hat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, what do you think is the most interesting aspect of of the ufo phenomenon that that has nothing to do with um like i know you're not into like the cases or the specific details of certain cases and things like that but other than like the intellectual stuff and the philosophy is there anything that you find like super interesting or like a specific case that maybe you don't know a lot about but you find very fascinating or something like that so i i do not love the drama, but I love the community as like a sociological and anthropological exhibition um, because I think the varieties of personalities and backgrounds and ideas and intensities that arise are very, very fascinating. Um, I, you know, I, so I do, I have, I don't want to call them pet cases, but like I'm super fascinated by Cash Landrum. Um, because I think that's an extremely compelling case. Um, yeah, where's Matt I, when you need him? Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> him and I have talked extensively about this, um, and I finally got to read that John Schuessler book that's like a bazillion dollars on Amazon. Uh, I finally got to read that, and it piqued my curiosity further. Um, you know, and I'm very interested and this is something i'm starting to research and write for the invisible night school is um anomalous phenomena in antiquity in the middle ages hmm. um and, and how these events were documented and recorded and interpreted um, i mean even just looking at like the miracle of fatima i think is super fascinating um so you know these historic events um and, well, and like, I mean, the, I like that munich one like those ones that they those little like wooden oh yeah over called? nuremberg yeah. yeah yeah from like 1561 yeah and i have this great book or not i have a I have an article called like on it like ufos in late antiquity which is like about observed phenomena in like like rome and greece yeah that sounds um, awesome and i think that's really interesting um you know and i think the other thing that i find fascinating as well and this is not woo at all but is um i would say like government insertion in this community um whether is uh deliberate uh counterintelligence or psyop or mis and disinformation agents so not just actual government intervention but also the kind of co-creation of reality by members of the community about who those people might be why they're doing what they're doing um people who believe themselves to have access to mysterious or privileged information even though they're just like random people you know um i, I think the sort of creation uh, of the community mythology and it's like social dynamics like that dude, was happening last sports. night like, there was like a, a i don't pro. do fantasy football <laughs> There, oh, last, there was like a pro space and, and, a, and an anti space last night for this one. I'm not going to go into whatever. I'm sure people can go back and listen, but yeah, there was, there was uh, 
Yeah, and then there was Shane's, which was a peaceful, yes. speculative, philosophical space. And those are the kind of spaces I love, too. Not that I don't listen to the drama ones, because like you said, it is interesting to watch. Uh, and and look, my story with this whole thing is we've been doing this podcast for like five years. Uh, that's kind of when all the UFO Twitter stuff started to happen, and I jumped in that game a little bit. Um, and then, you know, to be honest with you, some stuff was rubbing me the wrong way, like the first year and a half, two years of it. And um, mm-hmm. the interesting thing to me was I took a step back from all that. You know, like we've continued to do the podcast. We've continued to do some UFO episodes, but I wasn't like actively interacting with UFO Twitter and like, you know, inputting my opinions into things and something like that. Um, and then I think something happened. I think it was partly like, one of my friends telling me, you know, just jump in the game kind of a thing. And somebody else had said that to me, like before I started my podcast and, um, you know, there's the whole thing of, I don't know what philosopher, maybe it was Plato, but the idea that if, you know, you don't, um, like if you don't step up or somebody, somebody else is going to rule you with their shittier ideas and things like that. So I I think it was, um, Yeah, yeah. So like that, that's my whole, reason for jumping back in the game which i don't know how long it was six six months ago five months ago i had been doing twitter spaces but i was doing them on like ancient mysteries and psychedelics and other things um and i saw what sam was doing with the ufo um spaces and everything and i thought like this is good i'll i'll jump back in this game because for a while i was treating it like an anthropological study i was watching all the drum i was watching all the people i was watching all the feeds and the beefs and the clicks and all the things but i wasn't participating in it i was just i was like a watcher you know i felt like an alien watching people um to a certain extent uh but then i felt like i said i felt like i had to jump in the game i feel like i had something to say um and instead of um you know, using my voice and my intelligence to kind of interject what I think are good ideas and and, and things like that. I was just letting other people say, you know, spew bull crap. So again, that's just my story with this whole thing, but I, you know, it can get kind of chaotic. Um, and I'm happy that I stepped away for a while. Um, but, um, it is one of those things where you can easily get drawn into that stuff because even if you feel like you're a good person, you're saying all the oh, right things, sure. somebody will have a problem with something that you're saying. So it doesn't matter. You could say the most benign things and somebody will find an issue with it. So, um, What do you think? Um, do you feel like you know, when you do your invisible night school spaces and stuff like that, do you feel like, um, you, like I mentioned earlier, I felt like my duties to kind of add some of some value from some of these other topics that are relatable, um, and that adds context to how we got to where we are. Do you feel like that is partly, um, your role as well? Or do you feel like you offer like a variant of that of some sort? Yeah. So, I, I see my role as um, twofold. One is to uh, candidly model behavior that I would like to see replicated more consistently through the community. So what I mean by this is genuine intellectual interrogation, um, a willingness to engage in good faith discussion with people uh, about other subjects. And finally, um, I feel a personal responsibility, rightly or wrongly, uh, 
to publicly hold ideas and beliefs to some degree of integrity and accountability. Um, and I think that there are ways to do this that aren't directly driving conflict. Um, it can even just be as simple as learning to ask skillful questions. Um, and uh, to be clear, this kind of, I don't want to overcharacterize myself as particularly diplomatic, but um, I would hope that the, the heuristic I use is that if someone who I intellectually respected thought that I were going down a bad path or needed to truly reconsider my views, that they would say something. And similarly, um, I, I'm certainly not a conscience of the community, but I do feel like it is important to hold individuals accountable for ideas and beliefs that they promulgate, particularly when those ideas and beliefs may be harmful or uh, frankly may undermine the importance and enormity of this subject. Um, you know, I, I am a big believer in all of our collective abilities to do better, whether it's in ufology or business or in our personal relationships. Um, and my commitment personally is to treat this with the degree of seriousness and respect that I believe it deserves. So for me, yes, part of it's entertainment, but you know, I find it deeply troubling when I hear community leaders champion people like David Jacobs, you know, like we can do better than that. We can do better than, you know, presenting uh, predators as upholding some idea of scientific rigor. Um, yeah, I don't we, even we know can... who that is. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but my point, my point is that I, I think that there is a dynamic in this community that almost refuses to push back on claims that people make. And I think that, you know, I, I, like the more I think about it, um, I tend to think that the community kind of bifurcates. Like you have people that this is their entertainment, it's their group therapy. They don't want to be involved in true discussion or interrogation. And then you have people that are, you know, really undertaking this, I think, in a, in a more almost academic fashion, like mm. who are just trying to get to truth or information or find answers. Um, I definitely identify more with the latter camp um, than I do with just a, hey, let's just swap alien stories around a campfire. <laughs> like, that's cool. And I understand it exists. Yeah. But um, I'm much more interested in a, a rigorous and uh, a, r a rigorous interrogation of a subject that I think deserves considerable, considerable respect and uh, accountability. Absolutely. Um... And I, and I agree. And, and, you know, you do have, you know, there's been people that have come and gone that now, you know, in the moment, maybe they, they were like, kind of like the voice of like the movement, you know, and now we look back like, Oh, what's that guy doing? You know, or what's, what's going on there. Mm -hmm. So, um, there's definitely that element of it. Um, for me with the government stuff, like I just let them do their thing. Like I, you know, like that doesn't, if, if you've had an experience or you're studying this thing from a, from a different standpoint, what do you need from, from them other than for the one, you know, for the activists to, you know, push the agenda so they can have 
you know, Congress or whatever. Let them do that. I don't have a problem. Like, let them figure that out. You can either listen or not listen. It, it either adds something or doesn't add anything. You know, like I, for me, it's like I'm 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 under the impression that it's not unless they come out with something that's like a game changer, which they claim to have these longer videos and these different things and all that. That's awesome. Let them figure that out. But in the meantime, I'm doing me. And I think that that's the problem is people are, you know, um, the people that don't want to be involved with that feel like they still have to like interject their opinions on that. And I don't see how that's being productive. And I get the whole, it's been 80 years and the line to, and the, the jokes and the, you know, the laugh factors and all the things. Uh, but I just feel like, um, you know, again, it's like with the science thing, like, do we want this studied or do we not want this studied? If we want it studied, then we have to, if we, they produce more videos and pictures, there'll be more scientists on board. You know, like there'll, we want scientists involved in this, but Mm -hmm. then we don't want them to push this agenda through. And that's the only way it'll become credible, similar to you see other movements. I would actually even equate it to like, uh, cannabis, like look at where cannabis, when I was in high school, you know, we, 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 I've been smoking since I was, you know, 13 years old, 14 years old. When I was in high school, it was so taboo. You know, you were a stoner or a hippie. You know, I was in a jam band and also played sports and all the stuff. But I had a, like a, a good mix of friends and everything. But there was a stigma behind it. And, you know, if you would have told me back then that it would be recreationally legal where I live, I'd tell you you were high or crazy or, you know, whatever. So I equate it to Mm -hmm. that in the sense that you need, even though there might be parts of it, like financial parts of it or whatever that seem like counterproductive, I think you do need it to become mainstream so you can sort out what's what. Oh, yeah. So that's where I stand on that. I know... I know people like to fight about all that stuff, but I do think it's like, just let it like happen to help it. Don't help it, but just let it happen so we can see what's going on. You know? Yeah. There's like, there's a mimetic element to it too, where you, you need to see other people publicly exhibiting behaviors before you personally feel comfortable doing it, particularly when it's an unpopular uh, behavior like I think of I like I, I'm gonna go back to this breathwork retreat where the first breathing session everybody was very well behaved there was no noise nobody had these like wild experiences and by that fourth session all hell broke loose you know <laughs> sounded like a because bunch of Andre Agassiz or like, something <laughs> yeah exactly and, and it was like people needed to see that it was okay to process and experience uh intense emotions because it's something that is so stigmatized and so taboo in our culture. Mm. Um, And I think the the same thing exists with ufology. It's highly stigmatized. It's taboo. I think it's increased acceptance is heavily yoked to the psychedelic Renaissance, to the emergence of um, more, uh, I would say kind of pick and choose style spirituality. Um, I, I think that these are direct responses to the artificiality and construction of our current world and our society and our culture. Um, there, there are desperate attempts to um, reclaim authenticity in the human experience. Um, but I, I think the other thing, uh, and I do want to say this about the community, is it is, uh, and again, I, I view a lot of conduct through the lens of what I want someone to talk to me about this if I were engaging in it, which is I think there's this enormous amount of magical thinking in this community where regardless of evidence to a particular point, um, 
it just winds up glossed over. Uh, the, the ego attachments that people have to particular individuals or outcomes or identities um, is not only very strong, but in my opinion, it can become extremely concerning and also undermine the stability and collaboration within the community. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, know, I, 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 it, it can be very troubling, I think, for me to see sometimes. Absolutely. Uh, that, that worries me too. Um, I try not to push back too hard on it because look, we're all trying sure. our best. And if you want to believe in something higher, who am I to talk, you know, tell you not to believe right. in, you know, something or whatever. So that's not where I, but like, you know, I wake up, you know, I mention this all the time. Some days I wake up and I think, man, we're, we're living, breathing magic. Like, look at this conversation we're having through technology. Like, what are we like? Why are we mm-hmm. here? Like, this is, crazy you know and like that's that's always a good vibe and then there's days where i'll wake up like very eeyore and like yeah this is all hell world screw this yeah you know (laughs) uh but you know it's something i do think about a lot i i do trend towards the magic more often obviously but i do think that yeah you got to be careful though um uh actually the the living breathing magic thing i created let me let me see if i pull it up here I made that T-shirt in the top left corner with Anubis. I don't know if you can see that um, holding our, our logo. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was inspired by, yeah, just just the constant debating and thinking about that idea um, of where are we, where do we come from, you know, like where is this thing going? And it's just, you know, I can't. I try and talk with stuff like with my wife. She's like, what are you talking about? I can't, I don't have time for this shit right now. You know? So it's like, uh, that's why I go on UFO Twitter. You know, we have talked about this stuff, but she's just on a whole different, you know? Um, but that's why I love her. You know, you need a, you need two different perspectives on things to, to for a healthy relationship in that regard. Uh, but that's why I love you guys. And that's why I love jumping on UFO Twitter spaces and the spaces and conversing with everybody because I love hearing the different perspectives and I love bouncing my own ideas. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I would be, I would be lying if I didn't say that there's an element of like sharpening my talking skills, um, and dialogue skills and, debating skills um and again not to like steamroll people or anything like that but i do think that if you can become an effective communicator and you have good ideas we need more of those people um and i'm not even saying that that's me but i'm just saying like that's my philosophy of that is like let's cultivate uh as many people and as many thinkers we can um that can kind of look at this thing from this epistemological lens or this philosophical lens and Mm -hmm. and try and grow that community and that's why i think it's awesome what you're doing with the invisible night school i've i've i think i've jumped in on every single one uh you guys haven't had one this last week right but i think i've before that no no we haven't um i I was at kirtan and then this other retreat but yeah i mean like when i went back and and started this you know my real goal first and foremost was to try to elevate the conversation uh, about this subject and to bring mm. some rigor to it. But the other was to, in public, show through demonstration how to learn and how to critically analyze. Mm. Um, and I think that, I mean, candidly, a lot of it was born from, you know, one of, I, I've only been in the UFO community for a short period, but I've generally found this sort of information and scientific literacy to be pretty abysmal. Um, and 
I wanted to create a space where people could meet for conversation and also where the other members of the school could, through uh, person. their analysis and processes, because I think that that's something that is missing uh, truly in this community. I mean, we have shows like Skinwalker Ranch that purport to do real science, but, you know, they're just entertainment shows on like history or A&E or whatever. Um, You know, I, I really, it was important to me that if I was going to exist in this community, that I put in some effort towards making the conversations uh, more rigorous than many of the conversations I had I had been exposed to. There are pockets of, of truly, I think, very thoughtful people um, who are truly working on learning and growing, but it felt like there was also a dearth of this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, let's, like, I'm with you too. Like, um, skillful conversation is very much a refined art and it requires practice and exposure to different ideas and different types of communication. And so personally, I find that uh, this is a benefit to me in these spaces. I feel like I grow as a communicator and as a thinker. Yeah. I mean, I can even say that, I mean, I don't know how long we've been talking, but you've been on there for at least the last three or four months, right? And I I just, I know that um, from even listening to you talk from then, I mean, you've clearly... Um, I don't want to say like grown or anything like I've watched you grow or anything like that, but just like I, I've noticed like an evolution of your own ideas over that time and uh, the way that you're able to verbalize them now, I think is coming across um, a lot more, I don't know how to say this, clearer to a lot of people mm-hmm. um, than it would have been, you know, three or four months ago. And I've gone through that as well. You know, it's very hard to verbalize certain ideas and concepts like you have it a certain way in your brain or the way you think about it but to actually convey that to another person even though we have all these words and um, uh, ways to communicate and text and emojis and things like that it's still very hard to convey the ideas sometimes so uh, but yeah I appreciate what you're doing for sure and I think that we need a lot more of that Um, you know there's there's people out there you know like I said you know um, Lots of fostering of these ideas. I know Tupacabra's got a lot of good spaces. You know, some of his are fun and and funny and, um, you know, uh, coast-to-coast-ish, you know. And then he's got some where, you know, it's a bunch of intellectual stuff going on. I know for me, whenever I do it, it's full-on philosophical, right? You know, if you jump into one of my spaces, Mm -hmm. yeah, there might be some jokes in there, but... You know, it's about it's about business. Um, and Shane, same thing. Shane's about bringing yeah, people together. Yeah, it's about true interrogation. Yeah, Shane's yes. you know the mental health, bringing people together, uh, sharing you know mm-hmm. uh, experiences and that kind of thing. And I love all all of these spaces are really really fun. Uh, and I know I, I gain different things from each one of them. I've met so many cool people. You know, you, Daniel, Sam, um, Dan. You know, there's just so many awesome thinkers that I've met in these spaces. You know, Nora, I'm trying to think, Logan, you know, like all these people, uh, Kent, you know, I can go through Matt, you know, who who's in the thing here? Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give him a shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Shane. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think that when you look at what's, oh, shout out to B too. I see you in there, B. Um, but uh, when you look at the oh, screen name, when you look at what's going on, um, with everything. I, I like where it's 
going in one sense and I try not to pay attention to all the nonsense. So I think if we all just try and do that, we should be good. But it might get dicey, you know. We might have to mm-hmm. we might have to strap up a little bit here, but uh I'm ready for it. I'm with you. Um, and I have, I, I've been so impressed, I think, with the welcomingness of the community, right? The willingness to connect and engage by and large. I think it's a true testament uh, to the strength of the community and also to, by and large, it's, its general interest in moving forward and learning and, and interpreting and growing rather than remaining uh, static and committed to particular worldviews or ideas. Absolutely. Is there? You have any other questions, Shane? No, I'm just glad to get to talk to him. Glad he was here. Uh, would you be keel? Wonderful <laughs> Bible. Uh, would you be down to do like a, like a ten minute Patreon segment if you have time? Yeah, Ben, let's do it. All right. Well, let's wrap it up here. Um, and shout out again to everybody that I mentioned before. Also, shout out to Chris and everybody. I also want to say I'm happy to announce Leah. Leah actually and Shane are both going to be in the documentary. Um, We did add a bunch of other people into the documentary. We do have the trailer, but there will be a new trailer. Maurice and I have started fully um, editing. I'm still waiting on one or two other people's. But, um, you know, the thing with with the documentary is it might not be till the beginning of next year. We're going to try for this year, but I I don't want it to be shit. I want it to be good. So I wanted to add other people. You know, bottom line is this, um, you know, I wanted more different perspectives. I, w- I wanted a, like kind of like a balance of academics, um, uh, you know, academic perspective, uh, experiencer perspective. Uh, but then I also wanted um, I wanted to get more of the female um, voice in there, too, because we didn't have enough females in there. And actually, we didn't have any females uh, initially. I reached out to um a few women that I really liked their take on the whole thing and they kind of denied us, unfortunately. So um, I'm glad Leah was able to jump in because I really respect her ideas and really, really, you know, like what she has to say about the topic. Um, And uh, yeah, I I think that uh, look out for Nora's women of ufology thing coming out too, because again, these are important things. I know people, you know, like you can't just look at it, you know, it is kind of like a boys club. So you can't just, dismiss this whole other element of that because like you know women are are half half the battle right like the female and the feminine energy are half of us we need that we need that perspective to balance us out and we need it to balance everything out and uh yeah not to sound like a a weirdo but i just wanted to throw that out there because i think it is important um yeah and how do you feel about that the whole females and ufology thing do you think that it's kind of coming along a little bit better or do you think that you know we still obviously have a lot of work to do uh well i mean i've been in boys clubs my whole life and my entire life has been being the only woman in the room uh whether rotc engineering school working in tech vc finance everything um i i think there is a long way to go um, I think that there's it's incumbent on women to support other women and also, honestly, for men to continue to make space to champion women's voices in this uh, in this community. Um, and I think that that's as as men in a male dominated space, like the best, most powerful thing you can do is make space for other women. 
I got to say, some of my favorite people in this space are the women. So um, listen, listen, men, listen. Stop talking yes, and just listen. I'm making a uh, point to do that actually in my spaces because yeah. it's such a white male dominated. It's always the same voice and like. So I try to make it a point to make sure no, you know, as many women as we can get to speak. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm and for real, like Leah, Nora, you know, Sandy, who's, you know, check out Sandy's episode that we did on ancient mysteries. All these topics, it's not just ufology. Like, I think, yeah. again, some of my favorite people to converse with on this stuff are uh, the females. So, yeah, check it out. Listen, mm-hmm. stop, stop talking, guys. Come on. Um, but, yeah, let's wrap it up here. Um, check out Leah's Invisible Night School. You're doing a live stream on Saturday, you said. Do you know what time? Yeah, Saturday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, you can find us and subscribe on YouTube. It's in my link tree link on my Twitter handle, which is at Leo Prime. Um, and you can also follow follow me for on Twitter to uh, find our upcoming Twitter spaces. We generally hold those about once a week. Awesome. Yeah, I don't know. Are you going to continue? I think you were doing them every like Monday or Tuesday, right? Yep. Yeah, it's generally been Mondays and Tuesdays. Okay. Mondays or Tuesdays. Yeah, and they're awesome. Like I said, they, you know, they don't go super long. I think they usually go like an hour, hour and a half. You know, they'll have they'll do their spiel, and then they have like some questions afterwards. I really like the format. So, um, you know, if you want to jump in there and listen, you know, they they do a great job. Um, and there's some cases and interesting things. You know, plasma stuff and uh, Midwest UFO um, cases and interesting things that I've heard that I've never heard before. So yeah, check that out. Um, I think Leah's got a sub stack too, so follow her or jump on her link tree down link uh, below. And yeah, we're gonna do a little Patreon segment with her. So if you're interested, our Patreon awesome. the the base Patreon level is only two dollars a month. There's tons of stuff on there. There's exclusive stuff you're not gonna hear. I'm not trying to really plug it too hard, but you know if you like our episodes with Rick Strassman or Randall Carlson or anybody that we've had on the podcast, for the most part, there's a bunch of um, content on there on our patreon so check that out uh we also have a merch store and if nothing else please just leave us a five-star review on apple podcast and spotify because i do really do appreciate that and i love all the amazing emails and comments um so yeah really appreciate that as well uh but listen leah you're awesome you'll be back on the show um and uh maybe next time we'll go a little bit longer here but uh Thank you so much for what you're doing and thank you for being awesome. And yeah, I appreciate what you're doing. Great. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Shane. This was awesome. Awesome. Well, everybody, I'm going to end it the same way I always do. Everybody, we love you. Stay safe out there and we will catch you next time. Peace.